This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to be able to be here this afternoon and to cover a topic that I think is under-addressed and super convicting. So I pray that you would bless us, that your spirit would be present, that we would recognize the fruit of the spirit more and more in our own experience, and that we would crave that, that we would long for that, and that you would make us into the people you would long for us to be, whom the people are looking for. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One Sabbath morning, a short Thai lady walked into our Sabbath school class. I had never seen her before, but some of our church members that were helping us with the church plant in central Thailand knew her from a funeral that they had, where they had met her and found out that she was in trouble. They had reached out to her. She had two handicapped children that looked like they were about 11 or 12 years old, but actually 18 and 20. And she was by herself, except for one other lady that was helping her quite a bit. So they had helped her. She would fish. She would try to grow some vegetables, anything she could do to survive and feed her two children and herself. So when she walked in, I didn't know her at all. We were sitting out on our porch. We had um, moved to the area because there were no Christians there, and I was directing the Buddhist Study Center for Global Mission. We wanted to be somewhere where we could really get to know Buddhists well. So we picked the old capital city of Thailand, where there for many centuries have been Buddhists and temples like every 500 meters or so. Um, so with no church to go to, in an hour and a half or so, we decided to start church on our porch, and so we would have neighbors and friends come together, and she was one of those. When she sat down, she told us later, she looked up inside the, the porch is what we have, we call it a sala, and it's just this nice little gazebo type thing. She looked up, and around the top, we had pictures of fruits. We were talking about the fruit of the Spirit that quarter, and so there was mangoes, of course, you know, something there, and and pineapples and a durian, the wonderful fruit of durian, and with the names in Thai and in English of the fruits of the Spirit. And she said as she sat there looking at them all, she said to herself, I don't have a single one of those, and I need every one of them. She was full of bitterness and anger at her parents, at her husband who had left her with those two kids when they began to have the mental problems that they were stuck with, at her neighbors who despised her because she was poor and often made fun of her. She was just roiling inside with anger. And, and we couldn't tell. She was smiling like so many of our good Thai friends do. And God was working. He began to work on her more and more. As she began to test and see the kindness of the friends who were reaching out to her, she found it was genuine and she was attracted. She knew they had something that she needed. And she began to test God, praying to him, see if he would help. One day she was out on her, her fishing boat trying to get enough fish to take care of her family. And nothing was coming in. Other neighbors were around fishing on the, on the river that runs past her house. And she said, okay, you're real God? Provide me with fish like that story I heard about in the Bible. And she began pulling in fish after fish until she had so much in her boat that she started calling the neighbors and saying, you want some of my fish? And they were like, where are you getting this? How is this happening? Little miracles like that started happening more and more in Mui's life. 
and she became a believer in God. Mm. It was not easy. She struggled every day. There, were, there was a time, I remember we went to visit her house with my son Nathan and Joelle. I don't remember who all was there, but I remember Nathan was there. She took her Bible and she pushed it at me across the floor. We were sitting on the floor and she said, take it. I don't want to see it anymore. I don't want to hear it anymore. You want to come visit me? Fine, but don't talk about God anymore. She was struggling. She had so much baggage, so much hurt she was carrying. But she kept seeing the things that were attractive. And so she would come back and say, okay, never mind. Yeah, I'll keep my Bible. Because my son had turned to her and said, now wait a minute, Mui. He wasn't so outspoken, but this time he just came unglued. He said, you know all the miracles God has done for you. He has helped you so much. The world out there is way worse than, than the Christians you're frustrated with right now. Come on, you can't leave him now. And so she picked it up and gone forward. And, and testing things about Sabbath. We had helped her start a little mushroom growing business to try to supplement her income. We'd helped her with health to think about how she and her children could live better. And there was just a lot going on in her life. Um, Sabbath was another miracle God did for her. You have to pick the mushrooms every day or they stop growing well. She said, but you've taught me about Sabbath. I, I can't do that. I better not. But how will it be okay? They'll, they'll be ruined by Sunday. God gave her a miracle Sabbath after Sabbath that she was able to see. And yet her faith still struggled. Finally, on December 25, she was baptized, gave her heart fully to Jesus along with the lady that was helping her. And over the last three years, I've watched her from afar because we moved back three and a half years ago, go like this. But the last two times I visited her, going thinking I was going to encourage her, um, she has found Jesus in a deep and incredible way, not just the lifestyle, because there was a time where she said, it is harder to be a Seventh-day Adventist than it is to be a Buddhist. This is more miserable. This is more of a yoke than it was trying to keep all those Buddhist laws. <laughs> you know, just all kinds of things she was struggling with. But this time, it was completely different. The last two times, she said, I have found Jesus. I have found salvation by faith. And she went into a description of the true message of the gospel of transformation by faith so that it is not a yoke that is heavy, but it is the law written upon the heart. It is the gift of Jesus Christ. This is the incredible joy and journey of one person, one precious little Thai person out of 68, mil 68 million people in Thailand, about 65% of which still have not had a chance to hear the gospel. God looks down. He sees Mui. He sees others. And he wants to reach them through us. And so today we want to explore, in the short time we have, the three angels' messages, the 144,000, what this special end-time message has to do with Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, postmodern people, and beyond. Now, hopefully, you won't feel like those two-minute movie summaries on YouTube of a movie. You've seen those? Where it goes through the certain highlights of the scenes. And by the end, you're just like, oh yeah, well, if you've seen the movie, it makes sense. If you hadn't, it doesn't make sense. But we're going to do that a little bit with Revelation 14, because we want to leave the overall impression together with you that there's much more to learn and unpack than we've seen in those passages. And number two, it is extremely exciting and very relevant, not just to Christians, but to all those other world religions as well. So I invite you, if you have a Bible or a smartphone, to open to Revelation 14. 
We just spent a semester at Berrien Springs with a collegiate Sabbath school going over this word by word. And so, like I said, we're just going to do a little bit of a, a summary to stir our minds to deeper study. Um, but it's worth unpacking. It's worth studying. Just take a concordance or a website like Bible Gateway and look up the word fear to see what does it really mean to fear God. Look up glory. What does it mean to give glory to God? Study it through the Bible, and it will come alive for you, and you'll know why it's at the heart of the Seventh-day Adventist message from Revelation 14. Okay. So verse 6, all right? We're going to get to a little bit of interaction in a little bit, but I'm going to just go ahead and, and just share with you that two to five minute summary overview. I saw another angel, verse 6, 14, chapter 14, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So is it a message only for Christians, Catholics, and Protestants that we have to share? What? It's for everybody, very specifically for everyone. Yet we have typically thought of, we preach this, to try to help other Christians join the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's bigger, it's broader, it's deeper. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Fear God. When you think of fear God, I think most of our minds quickly say that means reverence. doesn't really mean fear him, right? That's our general impression. Throughout the Bible, you have many places where it says, don't fear God, but you have a bunch of places where it says, fear God. And it doesn't say reverence. The original word has to do with fear. And so I wrestled with this. I don't want to just put it out of my mind. Is there something about God I should be afraid of? You know, instead of just making it smooth and nice. No, it just means reverence him. And in scripture, there definitely is. He is a fire. He is holiness. To be in his presence with sin means to be consumed. So there is something very frightening about his holiness, about his presence, through which we don't just go waltzing in with our sin, but we come with humility, with turning from our sin, because we know we don't need to fear his heart. His heart is so perfectly loving that he would die for us. Jesus has demonstrated he would give up eternity, his existence forever, so we can be in heaven. So as we share this, we know it is Fear God, his holiness, turn from sin, respect all that awesomeness of who he is, but don't fear his heart as all, at all, but a God to be respected. We're going to come back to this, to all of this for a moment, and ask you the question, which of the different religions, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, etc., would especially be attracted to these different areas, and which do they especially need to hear? But this brief summary first, give glory to him, honor him. What does it mean to give glory to God? Sometimes we think, well, it means, like it says in 1 Corinthians 6, use your body as God's temple. Give glory to him in what you eat and you drink. Be careful of how you live your life. Let him be seen. That is a big part of it, right? You, you can touch almost every area of Seventh-day Adventist lifestyle in the idea of giving glory and honor to God through the way you live, through the love like Kunmui saw in the Christians that were helping her. But it also means... Give glory to him as the only one who created, the only one who protects, the only one who saves. 
the only one who can do any of those things, that we're actually lifting him up and honoring him as the one and only in this age of pluralism where most people want to just come together and say, we all believe the same thing basically, right? So this is special. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Judgment? Who wants to go around talking to people about judgment? No. You're going to the police station. You got a traffic ticket. You know, is that exciting? Is that something you want to talk about? Judgment. God is going to judge the world. Well, the depth of the judgment is so powerful, so beautiful, because it tells us, number one, that God is dealing with sin. It's Amen. not going to go on forever. The children that are being, pro being trafficked, who are being taken from their families because the families are so poor, they sell them, taken to a restaurant, to a bar, to a prostitution brothel, that this is going to stop, that God is going to stop the injustice of war and, and the horrible situations we have. He is going to move and act. The scary part of judgment is, well, but what about me? I'm one of those sinners as, all, as well. And in the judgment, we see Jesus moving not only to the justice seat, the judgment seat, but to the place of advocacy, of protection, of caring, so that we have a picture of judgment in Scripture of one who comes in advance of the judgment to cover your sins and to transform you and to free you from those sins. So the depth of the judgment is so huge, we can't unpack it now, but as we look at it, we suddenly realize, as we'll explore in a few minutes, we have a system of justice and judgment and righteousness and mercy that is unparalleled in any other religion. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who who made heavens and earth, the sea and all that in them is. This is that connection we know to Sabbath, to what it means to really honor the God who gave us everything and to love him so much that we would rather die than to break his Sabbath. So much in that as well. We move to the second angel's message. Babylon has fallen. There's a mess out there. Religion is corrupt. Religion is useless for truly changing your heart and helping you love your enemy, helping you really care for your family and be faithful to your wife, transforming who you are. Religious people all around the world have been some of the worst in persecuting and destroying other people, in being judgmental, hypo um, hypocritical. hypocritical, and so much else. Religion has fallen, that second angel's message. And then the third angel's message, which sounds so fierce in dealing with the mark of the beast, the... Um, image the the different things that are yet to come upon the earth but ends with this beautiful picture here is the patience of the saints here are they who keep the commandments of god and the faith of jesus a message of righteousness by faith not like i thought of it when i was young okay you say jesus forgives my sins so i don't need to go worry about anything it's all from jesus he covers my sins but i better be good because i'm going to be judged and if i'm not good i'm not going in faith of Jesus, and keep the commandments. I don't see how I'm going to make it. Not that kind of thing, but instead, a righteousness by faith in which you put your trust in God, and he comes and dwells in your heart and brings every bit of the righteousness of who Jesus is by your faith and trust in him Amen. so that he writes the commandments on your heart and it can become and will become a joyful overflow like a well springing out of the heart. Whew. Three jets, three airplanes jetting through the air, 
angels, messages, something we have to share with the whole world. And now let's move to talking about, and we'll slow down, we'll stop this fast jetting, and we'll just kind of hang in the air for a little bit and begin to ask ourselves, what is attractive about this message to the different people um, in this world? Let's go to just where it's the, the different religions. Okay? So we're going to take a microphone, and, and like I said, we're going to just kind of pause. And I want to ask you, from the knowledge that you have, and some of you have more than others of different religions, but of what you know about Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or Jews or Wiccans, Baha'i, Jehovah Witnesses, Catholics, different people that you know as you think of the summary of what we've just talked about, what would be especially attractive, would connect with the values that they already have, that they would say, yes, that's good. I didn't know Christians believed that. That's beautiful. Which of these would you consider? Do you want to say something before we get into that? Okay. Thank you. I think it's interesting, like, how you brought up the fear God. This is very awkward, by the way, this microphone <laughs> system. Sorry but about the that. fear God is, is so interesting to me because we have heard a lot, you know, it means to respect him and, yeah, maybe to, you know, work out your salvation and that kind of thing. But I, I've been really interested in ministering to Muslims lately, and there is such a sense of fearing Allah. And even the quotation about, like, a man could totally be saved except for the deceptiveness of Allah. Like there's a real fear um, there and to actually be able to show there's a similarity there is exciting. That's interesting. Okay. Amen. And maybe especially to some Muslims who may look down on the Christianity they've heard preached or seen, which makes God just your buddy next door um, who doesn't seem very respectable to them. Thank you. Someone else up here. A couple people. Thank you. The reason, by the way, that we don't have a handheld mic is because it's a different frequency and it would blast us, so we have to do it this way. Uh, this might be the easy one, but Jewish people would appreciate the commandments of God. Okay, the commandments of God, and maybe in particular, any certain ones? Well, oh, the Sabbath. <laughs> the Sabbath. It's, you know, it seems kind of obvious, but when you go into Jerusalem and you are doing outreach to Jews inside Israel... And they look at you and they say, yeah, you keep the Sabbath here, but back in your country you don't. You know, all the, all the Protestant churches that come here, you, they're just a trick to get us in. And we can actually say, no, we have a church of several, you know, quite a few million around the world that honor the Sabbath from sundown to sundown. Yeah. Okay. For animists, I think it might be useful if the message is about fearing God and warning about the beast because you know they believe in animal spirits but they're also really concerned with protection from uh, the evil spirits and all those kinds of things so I think uh, tapping into that might be useful to catch their attention. Amen. They need a God of power, a God of incredible might because it is very frightening what evil spirits can do 
when they turn on you. They may have been very useful, very helpful as you have paid them sacrifices or sought them, but when you stop doing exactly what they want, suddenly it's very frightening and you need somebody who's bigger and stronger. Amen. Someone else a thought? For, for the Muslims, um, Babylon is fallen. It's their homeland. Their what? Their homeland. Okay, so some them. connection to Babylon, yeah. literal Babylon. These are things that may have some connection there in their minds. As it goes back, when you actually look at the history of what fell and what went on, there are lessons to draw from that that may help them to understand the spiritual side of it now. Keep, keep stirring your mind. Here's another one. I'm not sure if this is right, but I think Calvinists would appreciate the hour of judgment. Okay. Yeah. Calvinists? Yeah. Can you fill it out a little bit for us? Okay. Because I know Calvinists who converted from Catholicism because she didn't like the fact that you had to work for your salvation, whereas Calvinism, um, you know whether you're going into heaven or not. So okay. is she like that assurance of uh-huh. getting into heaven? All right, so the assurance of heaven connects with certain people. Okay? Think with me about Hindus for a moment. We're going to keep stirring this for a little bit, so don't, don't give up on your comments. Hindus who look at their life, who believe in karma, they believe in reincarnation, so their sense is, if something bad happens to me, it's because of something I did. If not in this life, I must have done something bad in a previous life. And I had better be careful what I do now, because it's coming around next life. I may go to hell for a while, I may go to heaven for a bit, but I'm coming back here, and I'm concerned about that. Does anything in the three angels' messages connect with that idea? even if it's far removed a bit. Judgment, okay. So there is a judgment. As you, as you delve into judgment in, in Scripture, we're very quick to put that out, to say, no, as Christians, we won't be judged. Study carefully. Look at it. What does the Bible really teach about judgment? It seems to me that it does say both good and bad will be brought before the judgment. Um, so it takes seriously... The idea that what you do matters. Many Hindus, many Buddhists, many Muslims are looking at Christianity and they say, why would I step down to be one of those? What is there about that 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 you think I would find attractive? I mean, it's not moral. You can be forgiven for whatever you do and you don't change. And it's just, no, thank you. So the idea of taking sin seriously, which as Seventh-day Adventists we see in the Bible, that it does matter. It will affect your eternal destiny. It affects your present. Um, is something that, that they do find very attractive. Any other thoughts stirring there? What about Babylon has fallen? Okay, no, go ahead. You had your hand up right here. I was going to say for um, postmodernism, the a little everlasting, closer, please. I was going to say for postmodernism, the everlasting gospel. Cause a lot of people think that like your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, but the everlasting gospel is kind of for everyone. Okay. So. That's all. Excellent. We're going to come back to the postmodern feel of 
how do we interact with that? This is typically a very truth-oriented message. Okay, this is what the Bible teaches, and you need to come out of your falsehood and know truth. But there is an element of it that we're going to look at that really connects with those who are kind of like, truth? Yeah, your truth, my truth, lots of truths. Um, not a big deal. So let's, let's look at that. I was just going to chime in. We mentioned, I think, two seminars ago about my friend Ali, a Muslim guy from Iraq. He was um, talking to me, feeling that I would appreciate the fact that he was debating his professor about the idea of creation, uh, that he felt that evolution was foolishness and debated his professor in front of the whole class. And he, said, he knew that I would appreciate that because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and he knows that I believe on one God who's the creator. And so as Muslims, they believe the same thing. They believe in a creator God. Amen. So a whole bunch of these, we have connections with Jews and Muslims. But as we look at Buddhists and Hindus and Eastern religious background, it can start to seem fuzzier and, wait a minute, I'm not sure where. But when we realize the depth of morality that they seek, that they seek, those who are truly taking their religion seriously, Buddhists will put aside so much in order to follow and to try to seek after right thinking, right speech, right livelihood, right action, right motive, the whole list of the, the Eightfold Noble Path is, is, it sounds like Seventh-day Adventist. Sounds like the kind of serious taking of our lifestyle, our heart, our mind, um, so that we can love God and love people with all that we have. There are connections, there are, there are attractions as we begin to think through what matters to them and affirm the values we hold in common before we move on to the things that are different. Um, what about Babylon has fallen? Just for a moment. Who do we typically think of as Babylon? Rome. Rome. Okay. Okay, so Catholicism and it's falling away from, from what Scripture truly teaches. And then Protestants, how they have followed in many areas like eternally burning hell, um, worship on Sunday rather than the day that God has set aside, uh, various beliefs about predestination and that God has predestined some to be lost or that you, once you say the name of Jesus, you're saved forever no matter how much you sin. Um, these are all errors that we typically think of. Study Babylon in Scripture. Take a look at it and see if it does not extend to all fallen religion. Um, perhaps especially what we have just mentioned in fallen Christian religion, but as a symbol of every attempt to win God's favor yeah. and to try to get in heaven through our own strength yeah. while perhaps on the other extreme living it as you want to. Yeah. The origin of Babylon is Babel in Genesis chapter 11. We talked about that last seminar that they refused to believe the promise of God that he would never wipe out the human race again. We must do something to save ourselves. That's our only chance. And they built a tower to save their own souls. That's exactly it. Any form of religion that lifts man up to please God and to save oneself Babylon, everything that, that falls in that category is Babylon. It's not just apostate Christianity. So, you know, how do you, how do you actually share this in a conversation? I mean, it's one thing to talk about what we have in common with Jews or Muslims or someone else and to come close and to share things. But when you're saying your religion is Babylon, it's not going to get you anywhere. This is not, this is fallen. This is, you need to turn from this. It starts to feel uncomfortable to us. And the way that I have found that it's much easier is to be able to say, you know, we've been talking about how we really need to live a good life. We need to do what is right because a judgment is coming. You know, if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. But it's tough, isn't it? It's really hard to forgive your enemy. It's really hard to stop doing some of those habits that are hurtful. It's hard to love even family when they disappoint you. 
And they, they agree. You know, our friends recognize it. And then be able to say, that's why the Bible teaches that religion as a whole is fallen. It's not able to help us. No matter how hard we try, there's still a deep-seated problem, and we need something different. Can I share with you an incredible story about Jesus and his death on the cross and how it has given me hope and it has helped to change my heart? Mm. That's Babylon has fallen, but it sounds so much better. Mm. It's summarized there simply for us that we can see. Even with the third angel's message, there are ways that we can share it rather than the typical, okay, let me go through Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation 13, clearly to identify the beast, his image, his mark, all that, which is helpful at the right time. But one way that I have simply touched and connected with people in a taxi at different times in Thailand or elsewhere, but especially in Thailand, is as we're talking. And they say, oh, you're from America, huh? And we're going back and forth and talking about it, and they're saying this or that about America, and usually polite, but they're thinking, you know, different things that they're not saying. And, and I will actually tell them, I will say, did you know that there's a prophecy that's 2,000 years old about America? And it says it will begin as this beautiful, nice country, this country that's freedom-loving, like a lamb, and playful and, and, and nice, but that eventually it will begin to speak like a dragon, that it will have power that affects the entire world. Really? Yeah, that's what's happening. That's what you know, it's like. Yeah, and did you know that it goes on to say that it will be both um, snake-like and dragon-like and that it will have uh, an insidious influence everywhere? I mean, you can unpack so much. Our influence, as we look at it, as we think about America, is not merely political forcing of the world, but when you think of the power of Hollywood, of our television, of our music, of our games, we have had, as a country, an influence worldwide that is, that is destructive to a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is completely counter in almost every single way that you can think of to the Ten Commandments. These are ways that others can look on and see. Okay. All right. Um, what we want to do right now is, is transition out of that. That's just a, a little brief connection that you can explore and study more as you think of people that you're sharing with um, and where they're at and how to connect with what they believe and value and then take them further. We'll come back to the punchline of the three angels' message at the end. But let's take a moment and think about the 144,000. In Revelation 14, you have three sections. You have right in the heart what we've just looked at. And at the very end, you have this picture of the harvest of the earth, harvest of the grapes, the harvest of the wheat, the good and the evil polarizing, becoming two distinct separate groups that are fully mature when Christ comes so that it's clear and he can harvest one or the other. But at the beginning, we have this description of the 144,000. Let's, let's read that. Dee, would you read that for us? The yeah. first few verses of Revelation 14, verse 1 and then down through verse 5. Yeah. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. 
These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Thank you. So three parts in Revelation 14. A powerful message in the middle. It's going to the entire world that gets people ripe one way or the other because as it's presented, people are, are drawn, powerfully drawn, or they strongly resist. But this picture of a special group of people at the beginning, how do you think that relates to the rest? What are the connections between this section? Any thoughts on that area? Uh, as we move into this picture of 144,000 attractive ways to witness, we've been talking about the, the verbal message, the verbal part. We want to begin to look at now, what is the life of those witnesses? What is the life of that group of people at the end who take the message powerfully to the world? And how does our character in, introduce effect in that? As you think of these people, what, is your, what are they like? What, are, what is the last group of people. We've been talking about a generation that finishes the work. What are they going to be like? <clears throat> yes. I'm sorry. Um, they'll definitely represent the character of Christ. So when people see them, they'll see Christ in them. So, so they'll no longer see Walter or Sean or whoever the case may be. They'll see Christ living in them. So it won't be a representation of them. It'll be a representation of God himself. Amen. Amen. So where are you drawing that from the phrases here? Anywhere in particular that stands out to you? Um, yeah, he said that um, they're not the five women for their virgins. Um, and when, um, when um, Jesus was brought before Pilate, it said that I find no fault in him. So these same exact 144,000 will have no fault in him whatsoever. So they'll have the same exact character that Christ had. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Someone else? Yes. <clears throat> The 144,000 will uh, really love sharing how Christ has transformed them and worked in each one of their lives and sharing that with people in hopes that they'll be drawn to Christ too. Okay, thank you. So that's, there's something overflowing that comes out like an angel flashing through the sky, excited, having much to share. What else do you see? It, it says the seal of God in their foreheads. They're like women who are completely devoted, that they're virgins. They, they're first fruits to God. These are strange phrases. This is a symbolic revelation. What, what else is it telling you about that last special group of people who are taking the message to the world? Another thought over here. No, that's fine. Go Keep coming. Um, so basically, um, what, brought to, uh, what brought to my attention was uh, when Christ gave parables throughout his life, um, he presented it in a way that was... Uh, it was, it was in a way that everyone can digest it and everyone can understand where he was coming from. And this same exact uh, seminar we're doing right now is to reach out to these Muslims and Hindus and, and Jews, mm. the same way Jesus gave these parables that everyone can understand and everyone can break it down and, and digest it in a way that they can see where their life is and how they can apply it to their life. This exact same way, that's why I said that Christ in us. So it's the exact same parables and the exact, exact same teaching that Christ did. It'll be the same exact things that we'll be doing as well. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Um, it's harder in a big group to really pull it out. 
as we've been exploring this in our collegiate class, there's different aspects that really start to break through. When we think of the 144,000, if you're typical to others, it's like, that's a group that maybe I'd be a part of, maybe kind of like to be, not sure what that really means to be 100% devoted. But each one of those phrases, you have the sense of completely for Christ, the first fruits. This is what's offered to the priests of, the, of all of the grain. This is specially devoted to Jesus Christ. These are the ones who are um, redeemed from the earth. They're bought. They belong entirely to Jesus, as he says in 1 Corinthians 6. You've been bought with a price. You belong to me. You are devote to me. You are like a virgin. You are, are betrothed to Christ. Um, these are the ones that are, are so close to the Father that his name is actually on their foreheads. Um, they are without fault. But that's the part we usually focus on. We think of without fault, and we think of all the little detailed, I mustn't do this, and I can't do that, and I shouldn't do that. But really, the large picture of it is this absolute devotion to walk with the Lamb wherever He goes. He's the pervasive thought on their minds, right? It's written in their forehead. Love for Christ and thoughts of Christ consume them. And it shows up in everything that they do. There's no deceit in their mouths. Um, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, that means that whenever you're laying every aspect of your life before God, what do you want from my life, everything radically changes. And you end up looking like Jesus as someone who has no deceit in their mouth, without fault, who gains victory over the beast, who has a white robe. Everything that Christ is entitled to, you yourself receive because you are Christ's. Right? And it's a beautiful promise that God has given within the 144,000. It's not a list of things that you aren't. It's what God wants you to be and what you can be through abiding in Christ. So when we begin to look at the lifestyle of Seventh-day Adventists, and there are plenty of people who say, you know, when you go to share with Buddhists or Muslims or different people around the world, don't get into doctrine. Don't get into lifestyle stuff. Just preach Christ. But when you actually get to them and you talk with them, many of them are not interested in hearing about Jesus. They're not, they're, they're, they've already got it in their mindset. They're turned off from Christ. They're turned off from Jesus. And what they really are interested in is your lifestyle. Yeah. They are attracted by what they see that is different from the Christianity they've seen elsewhere. They see healthy people who aren't drinking and smoking and doing whatever else the other Christians are doing in the villages and in the mountains and various places. They see uh, people who are clean, who are healthy, who are, who are loving and kind. And, and they are attracted and drawn by that. One thing about Muslims is that they're predominantly orthopraxic, meaning that they're watching what you do more than just what you say, because they already feel that they know what Christians are about. But when they see something in you that is different in the way in which you practice your life and the things around you, it's such an impactful witness to them. It's huge to them because they're wanting to know, does this thing actually work? I hear what you're saying, but I'm more concerned with what type of fruit does it bear, fruit, bear forth in your life? What does it look like? And for us to be able to give them a beautiful, attractive, common picture is so impactful. We, we had a friend, um, well, we actually didn't know him at the time, but there was a Buddhist monk. He was a monk for three years and then went back to living as a, as a, a newspaper, a television reporter. And he went up to visit the health center. His name was Prakasat. He went up to visit the health center there in, in Thailand near our college. 
And as he videotaped, as he observed and saw everything, there was one family that just really stood out to him. They were a group of foreigners from America, from Tennessee, and really tall. In fact, you might see him walking around here somewhere. And he was just drawn by their family. They were so loving. They were so kind. They lived out their values in all of their relationships and what they did and what they said. And so he said, I need to have what you have. I want to be like you guys. I want a, a wife in the future and a family like yours. Um, what can I do? And so they said to him, come live here. Come stay here. Stay with us. Work in the health center. Um, come be a part of us. He stopped everything he was doing. He moved there and he began to learn. This tall, handsome Thai man, the typical Thai just kind of looks at Christianity and says, I don't need that. We have a good civilization, wonderful country. Why would I, why would I follow that? But he saw something he personally didn't have. And he became a Christian, married a nurse there, and we got to work with him in church planting there in central Thailand, drawn by the Christian character. As Seventh-day Adventists, we have taken the gospel and we have said it can be integrated into all of your life, mm. but it must be done out of love for God so that when we think about the little things like, what do I eat? Do I eat that or drink that or not? Why does it matter? Well, how does it affect my relationship with God? Well, I feel like waking up in the morning and reading my Bible? Will I care about other people? I feel like serving or will, will I be more sick or, or drowsy than you know, not full of energy? These little things that we talk a lot about in committed circles have to be connected, like Jesus said, to justice, to mercy, to living a life of following the Lamb wherever he goes, not just into the most holy place, but among the least of these, among those who are being trafficked, those who are being enslaved, those who have nothing to eat or drink. I love that point because Jesus talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and said, you guys are meticulous about the externals. And he says, these you ought to have done, but you're neglecting justice, mercy, and love. And he says, these you ought to have done without leaving the formers undone. Mm -hmm. Notice that Jesus did not negate those things. They do have value. They are things that can be appealing and helpful to the people around us. But do not do those at the expense of being merciful, loving, and just. What does the Lord ask you but to do justly? That, that's it. That's what he's looking for within us, a merciful lifestyle. Um, so as we explore things, as we explore our doctrines, every one of them, which I think every young person begins to do at some time in their life, they say, why do we need to keep the Sabbath like my parents keep it? Or the other people in the church keep it. Why does it really matter what I drink and eat? What does it matter what I watch and think about? It, it doesn't make that much difference, does it? Each of us has to wrestle through every aspect of life and look at it in light of Christ, in light of the purpose that it has so that we can connect these things, not to merely, if I don't, I won't make it, um, to if I don't, what is it going to do to impact other people? You know, there's a world out there to save, people actually being killed, being trafficked, being murdered, being aborted, that, you know, I'm just too busy to spend my time killing people on my smartphone. You know, there's a reason, and young people can catch that and can say, if there is something really worth dying and living for is the radical life that Jesus called the disciples to, where he could say, if you truly want to be my disciple, you must love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, more than anybody in this world. You must love me more than your life. Be ready to die for me. You must love me more than 
anything, any possessions. Give them up. Come follow me. This is something radical that people are willing to pick up and follow. Um, how many people have found themselves being convicted at different stages of their experience about those things, the lifestyle things, the Adventist message? And so it was kind of like January 1, like, we're doing it. We're going vegan this year. Like, I'm juicing. I'm going to... I'm going to start running. I'm going to start whatever the thing may be, right? Like, I'm going to get serious about waking up and reading the Bible and get serious about this. And you find yourself in your own willpower, willing yourself to start something. And then time goes by and you find yourself in a place where the tank is dry and the motivation to do those things isn't there anymore. But man, you feel super guilty because I should. How many people have been in that position? Certainly most of us, right? I used to work in an academy setting. It's like all of my kids, right? She's one of my kids. Um, so that we find ourselves in those positions, but the beautiful thing that God has provided with this context, knowing that these are valuable things, that we shouldn't neglect those without leaving the former undone. Yeah, but how do we get there? Why would God ask something of me that I find myself not doing when I tried to do it? Anyone ever wrestle with those thoughts? Maybe you don't have to raise your hand, but like... It almost feels unjust that God would ask something of you that you find yourself wanting to do and trying to do but couldn't. Did you know that the nation of Israel actually wrestled with this very same problem? And it costs them everything in this very mentality. Ellen White actually says in the book From Eternity Past, I think it's chapter 32. Please write this down. From Eternity Past, chapter 32. It's EP is the abbreviation in the, uh, in the app. Chapter 32, she does one of the most beautiful explanations of the Old and New Covenant that I have seen um, and explains why God allowed them to make that covenant, what his original intent was, and so on. But I want to cover here... Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I want to cover here why we find ourselves in those positions and how to find a victorious experience in Jesus, which he attended for you all along. Those very things that you feel like you should be doing but don't know how, maybe just gave up on because you couldn't get there. This is a beautiful solution that God has. It's called the New Covenant, and there's a reason for this, actually. It was actually the original covenant that he gave to Abraham, but the blood of that covenant was ratified after the covenant that the people made with God. Chapter 32 will explain that, and from eternity past. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8. Actually, I'm going to summarize those first three texts. Turn to Jeremiah 31, but just listen um, to this overview here briefly. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. In your study guides, how many people have wrestled with the idea of the Holy Spirit? Like, who is he? What's he about? How do I, what does he have to do with me? In your handouts that we're going to give you, or did we give those? We did give those. There are some, like, ten aspects of the Holy Spirit's character and a bunch of texts for them to help step through that. But for time's sake, we need to jump into this. But in Exodus chapter 19, God basically told the Israelites, this is what we're looking for. And they told Moses before Mount Sinai, all that the Lord has said, we will do. God said, go down and tell them what I'm asking. And so Moses goes down. The people say, all that you have said, we will do. Then God gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And then he gives some other laws to Moses after that. And the people absolutely freak out and are terrified. And they say, look, man, I, he can't say another word to us or we're going to die. You go talk to him. But they say all that the Lord has said in verses, is it 4 and 7? 3 and 7 in Exodus chapter 24. Three times now they say all that the Lord has said, we will do. Now I have a very simple question for you today. Did they? 
In less than 40 days, they were running laps around a, a golden calf in pagan revelry. They obviously could not do it in their own strength. But we've wrestled with that, haven't we? God told me what he wanted when it came to these lifestyle things, and these things are needed for a better witness to the world around me. They're, they're for my t- so all that you said, God, yeah, I will do it. And then we crashed and burned too. Well, there's a lesson to be learned from their experience. And she says that in chapter 32 of From Eternity Past. But turn to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make what type of a covenant? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, what seems to be at fault here then in this old covenant experience? Was, it, was there something wrong with the covenant? No, it was my covenant, which they broke. That I was a husband to them. I was the love of their lives, he says. Well, what do we do with this? This is the problem. They thought that, the, and she actually says this, that God allowed them and allowed them to make that covenant so that they would crash and burn to see their need of a Savior. That's what she says. It's an amazing chapter. She says that God allowed them to make that covenant because they did not see their need of a Savior. They felt self-sufficient. So he allowed them to make an agreement that he knew they would fail in, not because he wanted them to fail. That wasn't the covenant that he made with the covenant's in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Exodus is after this, they forgot that fact that they needed a Savior. So he allowed them to do it, to see their need of a Savior, to cry out to him. Now the beautiful solution is found back in Jeremiah 31, if you keep reading. He says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How many people have felt that maybe God has abandoned me because I haven't done the things that he's asked of me to do? Well, in the New Covenant, God says, I will be their God. They will be my people. There's no loss of ownership here. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Hey, that starts to awaken hope in the human heart, doesn't it? Did you notice that what seems to be the vehicle through which the law is inscribed in the hearts of the people? How does that happen? I will, he says. I will. Now, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. There are 10 I will statements in this book, in this chapter. This is one of the most beautiful promises found in Scripture, if you ask me. There's tons of them. But this is one of my favorites. It's a, it's a gold mine of the gospel. Ezekiel 36, I want to begin in verse 22, because this whole thing wraps up what we're talking about today. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. How do Muslims feel about God right now? You see where God's going with this? They're profaning God because they're seeing bad pictures of Christianity. So he says, what I'm about to do isn't for your sake, but for my holy namesake, which has been profaned among the nations. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. How? He says, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. 
when they see a people who follows the Lamb wherever He goes, they're going to know that He's the Lord. That means that we shouldn't be downplaying the lifestyle changes, but we should be changing the way that they're achieved. Acknowledging our need of a Savior. So He says, Then they will know that I'm the Lord when I'm held in you before their eyes. Verse 24, and here's how I'll do it. For I'll take you from among the nations, I will gather you out of all countries, and I'll bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. So who's doing the cleaning here? God. God. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. We got some of those, don't we? Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. Hey, my heart problem is, is really the main issue in hand here, right? I've either tried to keep the law and do the externals to save my own buns, or... I just am too selfish to actually lay my heart on the line for him to take. He says, I'll give you a new heart. That means he's going to give you the ability to feel again. A sense of warmth in the human condition. Compassion. I'll give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That selfishness, that only thinking about me, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh and then I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, what does the word cause mean? Empower, enable. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, he says, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's the inevitable result of God living in you. Then, skipping down to verses... Uh, well, let me give an analogy for this real brief. It won't take very long. Um... I've shared this with my students. It's a little hokey, but you'll get it. Let's say that I tell Rebecca, one of my former students, that for my birthday, for my 31st birthday, September 8th next year, I want a Lightning McQueen bunk bed. I looked for a picture online. They don't have them. But I want a Lightning McQueen bunk bed for my birthday. Rebecca, I'm dead serious. I want a Lightning McQueen bunk bed for my birthday. So what do I want for my birthday? Lightning McQueen bunk bed. You better believe it. And then I show up to her a few weeks later, and I give her a check and say, hey, and here's the money for that bed, and I walk away. Now, her first thought is going to be, that's kind of odd, but it did make my job easier. And then September 8th, 2016 shows up. Rebecca knocks on the door of my house, and she has a moving van outside, and they're unloading a Lightning McQueen bunk bed with bows on it and stuff. And she rings the doorbell or knocks on the door, and I open the door, and... That, how did you... That, that's exactly what I wanted. That's exactly what I wanted. Oh, you're such a wonderful student. Oh, Wow. Now, her first thought is going to be, this man is absolutely insane. The very thing that he asked, he told me what he wanted. He was emphatic, and he paid for it. What's he getting all excited about? There's a variable in the equation. You know what that is? She could have pocketed the money. She could have kept it. A bed could have never shown up to my house. What thrills God about his people walking in the new life is that they are exercising their wills appropriately. She says in the steps of Christ that the will is the greatest battle that we're going to face. God's I wills, the ten of them in Ezekiel 36, are dependent upon your will. That's the difference. Are we willing to trust that God has our best interests at heart, that he can have our hearts? That's the question. And the picture of the everlasting gospel is 100% yes. Jesus is someone worth losing everything else for, but the ramifications of the new covenant when it comes to missions, is this, 33 to 38, and we'll close here. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. 
Our lives feel like ruins, don't they? It used to be a city. It kind of used to be something, but it's not really as recognizable now. And the desolate land should be tilled instead of lying desolate. Or it says, and the ruins will be, I will enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins should be rebuilt. Verse 34, the desolate land should be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by, so that they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. God rebuilt the city, and this time it's going to stand because it was done the right way. You gave God your will. And then they close here. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. And I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock of Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. People will be coming into God's remnant church because they see God in his people. And then he says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is God's intention for your life. This is the beauty and the promise of the new covenant that God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Amen. She says in the, the Faith I Live by 111, I'll close with this. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that, that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their own nothingness, then they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Amen. That's it. And this is exactly what people who are Hindus, who are Buddhists, who are Muslims, who are Jews, who are trying to find a way are searching and they know what is right, but they do not know where the power comes from. Like so many Seventh-day Adventists who know what they ought to be, but do not know how to practically bring into their life the righteousness of Christ that is a gift from us in such huge and incredibly beautiful ways. So 144,000 ways to witness, back to the title. It really means it's not a method, it's people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ enabled and empowered to share and to witness even as jesus did because we're following the lamb wherever he goes as we're closing here we have some cards we want to pass out to you they're color cards you can pick them up on your way out if you grab a couple they have really amazing statistics about how god has brought the world right to our doorstep and how we can finish the work in the world if you want to get more of those practical elements of how to reach out to immigrants, refugees, and international students. Listen to some of the other ones that we have presented or go to reachtheworldnextdoor.com. We have one last thing we want to give to you and that is um, the action card. We would like to invite you, if a few of you could hand those out real quick so we can do it quickly. Raise your hand if you have not received one of those yet today. Okay. okay. Um, we want to invite you to make a friendship with one person yeah. in the next six months who is of a different race and religion than yourself. Could you do that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's so exciting. We have just had an incredible experience. I'll share a little who has not later of, of encounters just on the university that is near us with international students who are, have become some of our closest friends just through those few months of interaction together. And secondly on the list is, um, is Praying for the world next door at our site, reachtheworldnextdoor.com. There is a prayer guide that you can do with a group in your church or in your community or in your home. And that's another possibility. And then thirdly, we have 
a kit that you can go with your church that will take you out into the community and actually establish a refugee ministry or an international student program or just multicultural witnessing that you can sign up. And finally on there is a podcast that I do weekly that goes out to, um, through email and Facebook that shows the needs of the world and what God's people are doing to help finish the work. So just you can fill that out and leave it right on your seat if you're ready there. And we'll be meeting at the next seminar time to talk about how do we deal with culture. There are so many cultures around us now, and so much of it is just assumed it's okay to do because it's your culture. How do we work through cultural issues from a biblical standpoint and make our decisions based on the Word of God while deeply appreciating every culture, but also deeply challenging every culture? That's why it's called death and resurrection of every culture. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. Want to stand with us and pray? You and me. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to be before you today and to be reminded of the fact that the things that you're asking of us are not unreasonable. In fact, they're incredibly attractive when done well and done with the appropriate motives, with a will surrendered to you. And that the people will then come to know that you are indeed the Lord, that you are Yahweh because you're now living in us. I pray that that would be found true in every person in this room's experience and for anyone who would listen and that the name of God would be made great among the nations through this last generation. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.